Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. If you're looking for witty puns and snappy repartee, well, you've come to the wrong place. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, they sometimes are irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I'm your host, Brian Levine, back home again and recording on a uh, Tuesday morning for uh, for the show to be posted on Tuesday night, just like we do every week, 8 p.m. Eastern time, a brand new show. And uh, remember, you must be of legal smoking age wherever you are in order to enjoy this fine show. All right, in uh, this week's show... Uh, a tale of two tobaccos in pipe parts, and <laughs> kind of a, it's a happy and a sad tale, uh, but it's a tale of two pipe tobaccos, and then my guest is uh, Jeff Grasick for a extended Ask the Pipe Maker, because we got such a huge response, uh, so this is an extended Ask the Pipe Maker, and just so that you know a little bit uh, what, what I do is I sit down with Jeff and we pre-record a handful of these in advance and then yeah you know, and then I sprinkle them out throughout the uh, throughout the upcoming episodes well we got such a big response and some uh, really hard-hitting questions so I figured all right we'll do this show and I've got another full show of Jeff coming up in a few weeks uh, and uh, yeah and uh, music mailbag and rant in fact the shortest piece of music I've ever played so you'll get that all that on this week's episode of the pipes magazine radio show uh remember if you could please leave us an itunes rating or review or apple podcast or whatever they call it and remember apple uh, has uh, changed itunes around and now apple podcast and they've changed the categories around so uh if you if you're listening to the show in some other way well we've moved categories that's just apple uh, and I am back from uh, back from ten nights in Europe, uh, and all I can say is, if you're going to Europe, hit me up. Let me know. I can give you a ton of advice on places to go to enjoy your pipe. Uh, Europe is dramatically more pipe friendly than the United States is, uh, in even Canada. Plenty of outdoor heated and protected places to sit down, order food and a drink, and smoke your pipe all at the same time and watch some of the most beautiful scenery and uh, architecture. Just, you know, just great spots. Um, anyway, had a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of good times, a lot of great museums, and of course, went to the wedding of my friend Perry Jensen. So that was a lot of fun. But uh, again, if you're going to Europe, let me know. Uh, you can email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com or brian.levine at mei-travel.com. I'll give you all my advice for free. And if I can help you out with booking something for a discount, well, that'll work too. All right, let's get the show rolling. So everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in. And here we go. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and I'm calling this a tale of two tobaccos because, well, I'm a tobacco hoarder, and and I and I'll admit it, and I and I'm proud of it. All right, <laughs> I've got a lot of tobacco, and occasionally I misplace tobacco. So here are the two tobaccos. Uh, about three years ago, I was uh, three or four years ago, I was in Germany, and I stopped in a cigar shop there that was also had a great selection of pipes and pipe tobacco. And uh, one of the things they had is a Dan tobacco called Ascanian Number no. One, soft and unique, and it's kind of an exclusive for the German market. And it's described as an Oriental Turkish Perique Virginia. 
Um, and you know, all right, so basically your standard Virginia Perique with a touch of Orientals. And then the other tobacco is uh, about uh, eight years ago, I was goofing around with blending and trying to come up with a bulk tobacco that I could smoke on a daily basis and kind of replace my regular favorite. So I had made up some little uh, 100 gram jars, little ball pint jars of like four, four different versions of blending with McClellan's 5100. Uh, the one that I, so I found these and I opened up the Iskanian number one and I was very excited about it. I was also a little bothered because if I, if I really liked it, the only place to get it is in Germany and the German retailers cannot ship tobacco. It has to be sold face to face. So I was a little bit in trouble. And at the same time, when I was opening up the McClellan 5100 that I'd blended with 10% uh, of their blended Turkish ribbon, I was also bothered because, well, first of all, I'd let it sit for too long. And second of all, I was like, damn, they're out of business. How am I going to replace this if I like it? Well, here's the story of the two tobaccos. Uh, the Iskanian number one is a very nice blend, but for what I was looking for, the Perique was kind of overshadowed. Um, it's good tobacco, good blending. I would consider it uh, a blend that if somebody was looking for a Virginia Oriental that had just a hint of Perique underneath it, that would be a great blend. Uh, it smoked well. It was a little bit on the wet side, so I had to let it dry down, but it smoked well. And I was okay with the fact that, you know what, I can't get any more of it unless I get back to Germany, which is moving up on the bucket list, uh, in particular Oktoberfest. Uh, but again, so, you know, I'm okay with the fact that I can't get it easily. The McClellan 5100 with uh, blended Turkish ribbon, well, that 100 grams of tobacco was absolutely wonderful for my breakfast tobaccos during the summertime. It did not have the kick that I look for with the Perique in it, but again, it's McClellan's 5100. It was packed a little tight and aged for about eight years. But it was absolutely perfect for my morning breakfast time tobacco and the blended Turkish ribbon added just a little bit of a floral note to it. So I'm a little bothered because, you know, that 5100 and uh, McClellan's blended Turkish ribbon just don't grow on trees anymore, which means, well, that was that was a really good 100 grams of tobacco that I got to have and I'll just have to remember it. Um, I am kind of kicking myself because, you know, I blended that eight years ago with the idea to let it sit for a year or two. And had I noticed what it was doing, I could have then turned around and bought a couple pounds of, you know, and made up a couple pounds of it or four or five pounds the way I tend to hoard stuff. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, oh, well, um, it was really good. If you are looking for a way to kind of uh, uh, thin out a Virginia or take some of the hot edge out of a Virginia, but you don't like the taste of Perique or Latakia, uh, and Perique and Latakia will just, you know, 2 to 5% will take an edge off of a Virginia that's smoking a little hot. Uh, you may want to try getting a blended Turkish ribbon. And it'll take it a little bit longer, but it does add just a, a little soft sweetness to it that's in the background and will absorb some of that hotness off of the Virginia. Uh, so there you go. Look for blended Turkish ribbon. I did this in a 10% to uh, a 10% blended Turkish ribbon and was really happy with the results. Unfortunately, you know, it may be a while before I ever see that again. Uh, I've got three more sample jars up there of uh, McClellan's 5100 that I goofed around with, and well, I'll let you know what I think of them in the future. <laughs> the other ones are with Perique in it, so uh, anyway, yeah, sad to sad to know that I won't be able to replace it, but also going into it, I know that 
you know, hey, I screwed up, but at least I get to enjoy this hundred grams of each of them. All right, there you go. A tale of two tobaccos and what happens when a tobacco hoarder has too much tobacco and loses track of something and screws up and then is okay with what happens. All that. All right, uh, coming up, Jeff Grasick. This is Internet Radio. Being at the forefront of craft tobacco production for over 20 years, we've been involved in some rather interesting projects at Cornell and Deal. From the Cellar Series to the Small Batch Project, we're extremely proud of how far we've come. So moving forward, we wanted to take it back to basics, and that's what the Burley Flake Series is all about. Burley is an underrated varietal, but there is a ton of nuance there. Using various condimental tobaccos to accentuate different aspects of the air-cured leaf, each blend in this series is intended to showcase different individual subtleties inherent to Burley. It's a simple concept, one that I think really speaks to the essence of what we do at C&D, as a crew of folks who just love tobacco. It's also really good. Cornell & Deal's Burley Flakes series, wherever fine tobaccos are sold. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and the response to the Ask the Pipe Maker segment has been so big I, that, Jeff, I just couldn't, you know, I didn't want to hold off a whole bunch of these questions and do them one at a time and spread them out over months, so... We're gonna do a uh, we're gonna do a jumbo ask the pipe maker visit with the pipe maker Jeff Grasick. Jeff, welcome to the show. <laughs> hey, got, thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, we got a lot to get a lot to get on with here, and uh, for this one, I've brought out one of the big guns. So, are you ready? Uh oh, I suppose Rick Newcomb in response Ooh. to. Uh, questions that he'd like to have the pipe maker discuss rick sent me a laundry list and we're gonna try to work our way through them in the in just in in this week's show so here we go the first one okay and fred hannah is gonna roll over and jump up and down and scream when he hears this well maybe we can do a fred hannah episode we we could do a, we could do a whole podcast on fred hannah <laughs> on Fred Hanna or with Fred Hanna? Uh, just on Fred Hanna. But we oh, could perfect. have, yeah, and then we could have him on and talk about him too. Oh, okay, good. Um, Rick asks, "Does straight grain on a pipe make it a better smoke?" Boom, boom. Yeah. What do you yeah, think? I, have you read that before, Brian? Uh, this question. This, oh, well, I mean, have you heard that? I, I, I remember when I got into uh, making pipes and became interested just in, in pipes in general back in the uh, early 2000s. I remember reading that. Do you remember that? The, well, I've, I remember the brand versus the briar and the straight mm -hmm. grain. The, the straight grain. The straight grain helps with the density of the wood and helps with the dispersion of the heat a little more equal and it may mean that the wood's a little more consistent so therefore it should give a better smoke does that make sense because it all made sense to me until i really started smoking costello sea rocks and uh and dunhill shell briars from the 50s and i was like there's no straight rain here yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I've been doing this for a little while now, and I haven't uh, found any difference personally. And and frankly, I find I I think what this was um, addressing was, and and this is probably true for a lot of these pipe myths. I think we can put this in that um, uh, in that category. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, well, or personal preferences, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's what that is. I, I, part, it's a personal preference. Hey, people like to see straight grain, and it makes you feel good about it when you're smoking it, which can affect, um, you know, how you experience uh, the smoke. Kind of like if you drink, uh, uh, you know, uh, a fancy glass of wine out of a fancy glass versus out of a plastic kid's cup. You know, it's going to have... Uh, um, one is going to feel differently, and and as as a result, it might taste different to you uh, because of the experience. It's not really as objective as we might want it to be. But I think I want to ad address um, what I think may have been influencing um, this beyond um, the 
the personal preference thing, which is I think that there were a lot of people who perhaps rightly um, found that their smooth pipes where they could see the beautiful grain were smoking better than their you know, like you said, a C rock or something like that. I don't want to uh, put C rock in that category. Yeah, or, a, well, well, you know, we, a, but we, a rusticated pipe. Let's say a rusticated pipe from a no name brand, or even a a flame grain or a cross grain, or you know, a pipe that a pipe that doesn't have perfect straight grain but is still smooth. Y- yeah, yeah, but I think um, I want to I want to kind of um, uh, mark off or block off these. Um, uh, the straight grain, like nice straight grain versus rusticated pipes, um, where you couldn't tell that there was any grain. And I think in that case, um, there were people who were experiencing like uh, smoking an ice pipe versus smoking a bad pipe, a pipe where there may have been uh, multiple flaws in the briar or maybe wasn't cured as well. It was a, probably a briar quality issue more than it was a um, an issue with uh, the orientation of the grain on the pipe. I'm not quite sure how orientation of the grain could really affect the um, smoking characteristics of a pipe at all um, in, in a in a blind test. Now to kind of go to, go to the other set of brackets that we set here for the cross grain or flame grain versus straight grain, there were those who made arguments about that, and I wonder if in some part it was in jest um, because we have a lot of that in in this community. People who like to uh, they'll they'll say something like that. Um, in jest or to get a rise out of someone. And it makes me think of Fred Hanna's uh, article that he wrote, I think in the Pipe Collector, gosh, it was maybe 10 years ago or so, uh, in defense of expensive pipe tampers. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. That they, you know, he had his, his list of reasons why they were superior to just using a dowel or your finger or a stick that you find on the ground. Um, and that it caused the pipe to smoke better and it caused the flavor of the tobacco to be better. And, and the entire thing was tongue in cheek, of course. Um, and I think there's a lot of that in the pipe world that uh, uh, people are just saying things because they find it funny or they want to maybe get a rise out of some people. Uh, and this may have fallen into that category somewhat, too. And it's just been useful marketing for brands that uh, um, produce a lot of straight grains. You, you know, I'll, I'll add to that by by using my choice of light of lighter as an example as I drop my lighter. Uh, <laughs> I have. I have two or three Dunhill lighters. I have a ST DuPont lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple other fancy lighters that you know cost more than more than five dollars. That's my yeah. My, my designation for fancy is it costs more than five dollars. Right, it's more than a bick or a match. Yeah, but what do I use? I use my dollar seventy five plastic de jeeps, and I use them all the time, and I use them everywhere. Does it make my tobacco taste any better when I grab my Dunhill lighter and use it? No, right. Um, it makes me worried a little bit more because it might fall out of my pocket. But you know, it's it's to me, it's kind of similar. Where you know, if if the wood is, I'm going to assume that maybe a uh, Maybe you're going to get a higher propensity of good smoking pipes that mm-hmm. are straight grains because the the pipe maker is going to notice that that block of wood is really good, really or really well grained, and may take better care with it. The briar cutter may have taken better care with it over time, and I, you know you're going to you the pipe maker are probably going to pay more for that block of wood than you would oh undoubtedly. One. So you're going to be a little more careful with it. Um, You know, but I don't even think that the being careful with it really uh, factors in all that much. Um, I think that it's it's entirely down to um, and and of course, this is my opinion, but I think this is entirely down to a quality of the briar issue. Uh, And this means like well cured, well sourced and well cured briar versus not well cured and well sourced briar. Is it briar that was boiled in dirty water for 10 minutes? Um, versus briar that was, you know, boiled over 24 hours, you know, cleaning the water several times. Well, and maybe, maybe I can restate it. And I think you're, you know, obviously you're an expert on your own opinion and, and you're welcome to have it. Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe what I, you know, the way I would say, maybe I could say it better is that when you buy that triple a block of briar, you're going to be, you know, you're you're going to wait for the perfect pipe for that time uh, you know for that block you're going to be a little more specific with it right um 
you know, and you're going to be a little more excited about working with it. Sure, possibly. sure. But uh, and are you arguing that that would make it smoke better? I I'm arguing that well, in a lot in a lot of situations, it could smoke better. But you you being you and me having I own. I own three of your pipes. Two are sandblast, one smooth. I prefer smoking mm -hmm. the sandblast first. Mm -hmm. um, so you know you're gonna you are gonna treat every block equally when you make a pipe. You're gonna make sure that it's all aged correctly, but whether sure. the grain is good or not. Um, but at the same time, deep down inside, you might be a little bit more excited about playing around with that triple A super straight grain block. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Uh, so there is something there. I will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You may get you may get a better pipe uh, or a pipe that the pipe maker is more proud of. But in terms of smoking performance, I don't think that there's going to be any even the slightest bit of difference between that and you know a basic sandblast. No, but from me as a pipe smoker standpoint, you mm -hmm. know, a, a really good sandblast is interesting to look at and hold while I'm smoking, and so mm -hmm. is. So is a really well-grained pipe. It, it's interesting to look at and hold. It makes it a little more special when you're smoking that pipe than when you're smoking right. one that's got, you know, grain going all over the place. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that. So maybe it's more experiential, shall we say, man, you know, yeah. like totally. Yeah, it's it's like the, the broader experience of smoking the pipe is um, is different between the two but yeah. the actual objective smoking qualities i don't think um will really change at all yeah so there you go i've used big words and now i need to take a break so, and that was one question from rick oh that was one okay so we we are doing a whole episode right <laughs> oh yeah we're yeah so stay with us we'll be back in just a minute A Savinelli pipe is a testament to a long legacy, fortified by well-worn hands and destined to be enjoyed for generations. For over 150 years, Savinelli has been dedicated to sourcing the world's finest briar, committed to pushing the boundaries of pipe design, and devoted to the tradition of Italian pipe making. Savinelli is more than a mark. They're a way to help you make your mark, and like you, there can only be one Savinelli. are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, hanging out with Jeff Grasick for a uh, jumbo size Ask the Pipe Maker edition because we got another one from Rick, and I'm I'm pretty sure Rick knows this answer, but I think he wanted to. Uh, I think he's posing this question more for the general listeners so that they get a feeling for it. But here's the question. Okay. Why are there so many different price ranges for pipes? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. and this is this is actually a good question for you to answer because you have the Sure. you have the Allen Brothers pipes. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. you have your J Allen handmaids and those range from you know the sandblast and then up into the smooths and you know so you've got three or four different price ranges alone. So, yeah. So talk us through why are there so many different price ranges for pipes? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a number of ways to address this. I mean, we could do it by analogy or we could just, you know, address it, um, you know, very directly from, um, you know, a, I, I guess my personal um, uh, approach. Yeah, you do it the um, smart way. I'll dummy it down so that I understand it. Right, right. Well, I mean, um, basically... Um, Everybody who is a full-time professional in any business needs to make them uh, make enough money to make it worthwhile, right? Yep, and eat. So and eat, yeah. So you need to make be able to make a living doing it. And what it is to make a living is on a sliding scale, right? <clears throat> so whatever that number is, you know, depends on where you are and who you are, and you know, uh, that that is movable. Um, so. For me to be able to make a living and to be able to, you know, support my family and have a future, um, there is a number associated with that. Um, 
But that's not really how we price things, right? We don't price things. I don't. I don't go to my employer and say, "Hey, I need to make uh, forty thousand um, dollars this year." So whatever I do um, must be broken down per day or per hour or whatever to to fit with that. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously your time has value. So if you're doing, if you're a a, you know, a, a gas station attendant uh, pumping gas, there's a, a value associated with that. And if you are um, an architect um, whose work is highly specialized and, um, you know, who has multiple employees under you, yada, yada, your time is valued differently, right? Yeah, there's, there's a sliding scale in there. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a sliding scale. Um, so basically... Um, and, and there's also what the market will bear. I guess that's what determines the, um, the value of those things ultimately, right? So if you have pipes that are in very high demand, um, they're going to, the prices might go up, especially if the supply is limited, right? Yeah. I, I've yeah. had that discussion with certain pipe makers in the past and I, and I told them, I said, look, if, you know, if I can buy a pipe from you brand new and then turn around and put it on eBay and make a couple hundred dollars on it your pipes are too cheap right absolutely absolutely and um you know i think that uh uh that that's probably the bigger piece of it i kind of got into the, to the other value stuff obviously it needs to be they need to be priced high enough um for me to make a living or any pipe maker to make whatever they need off of it but you know they're only you're only able to charge what the market will bear um yep. for them and there are, you know, uh, if you have someone who is charging $1,000 per pipe and they've been making pipes for 20 years, but they're just sitting around or if they're charging, uh, th then they're not worth it. And if you've been making pipes for six months and you're charging $1,000 each and they're flying off the shelf, then your, you know, prices are probably too low. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and I'll, and I'll put the other analogy into it also that the uh you know the the market bearing price also has to do with what is the value of the item on the secondary market uh, but you, so do you are you suggesting that that influences what a pipe should be priced at um as a retail price yeah yeah because the secondary market if the uh, in the situation that i talked about before mm -hmm. you know if the if the if the item is valued at $100 retail, but yet the mm -hmm. secondary market says that it's still worth $90 once it's been smoked. Mm -hmm. Odds are those $100 ones are selling pretty quick. Yeah. So yeah, then exactly. you got to move the price up. And there's, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, you know, so the secondary market does push the pricing on the primary market. It can. I, I don't know that I would make that strong a correlation between them. Um, because I, I, you know, I think we could both think of, there are plenty of examples of some pipes that have uh, a price point. Let's just for the sake of conversation, say $500 retail and they sell well. And, but their, their resale pipe, uh, price on the secondary market is like a hundred bucks. Yeah. Well, all right. I'll, I'll concede that one for now. Okay. Um, but, the, but I think that, but I think that, uh, you know, what you're saying is potentially suggestive of what, of, of what you're saying that, you know, that if, if the secondary market price is that high, I mean, let's take, um, uh, Nana Everson, um, for example, like her prices are, are, um, pretty, pretty up there. And the secondary market is also really, really up there. Right. Yeah. So they're in demand and at retail that the demand at retail and the demand at, um, uh, as estates are, are almost equal to one another. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I would, I would think that the demand for, well, I would think that there's more pipes sold at, on the, uh, on the estate market than there are on the new one, just because there's more older Matter pipes supply. than there is more new ones. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they're hard to come by. Yeah. And, and you're, and you only have what, six of them? Six, uh, Everson's? Yeah. Nah, nah, yeah. unfortunately. Oh. Oh. I don't have any. Darn. Um, the other thing that I think Rick that I think needs to be addressed in there is the uh, is you know the price difference between a production pipe and a uh, and a and an individual handmade pipe you know for using your Allen Brothers pipes for example right those are done in a set of 
shapes, they're standardized, they're mm -hmm. produced in groups instead of one at a time with all the process, right. you know, with all the without all the rejiggering of this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's more it's a more efficient production process. Yeah, yeah, and that and you see that in several pipe companies, including Savinelli, where they have you know great production pipes and then they come out with the autographs that are all you know unique handmade pieces mm -hmm. and the prices are eight to ten times that of the production pipes right right yeah so, i mean the, the amount of labor that went into those is is that much higher so i i just as a guesstimate let's say a production pipe has i don't know let's say uh 20 minutes of of actual human working time in each one and a handmade pipe takes five hours, right? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a big difference. Yeah, no, it, it it is, and and a lot of that difference is made up in the in the stem production time. Mm -hmm. um, but that's where you know that's where that delineation hits with the uh, you know with the production pipes, and then you move into the into the handmade pipes. And right, you know, I think there's uh, you know for me, price doesn't price of a handmade pipe doesn't always correlate to smoking quality or my mm -hmm. smoking enjoyment because right. you know i i know some pipe makers that i like that their pipes are 350 400 500 brand new and i know some pipe makers that are making pipes brand new that are two thousand dollars that i like so right yeah you know, it just depends on where on what you figure out you like uh, and I think right. I think at that point we've completely obliterated Rick's question, or at least I have. <laughs> um, we, we've certainly addressed it from multiple angles. Yeah, and the uh, and the next question that he's got is even deeper. Can you? Uh -oh. <laughs> yeah, sorry, you get this one too. Uh, do you see any differences between pipes made today versus twenty years ago versus one hundred years ago? I mean. Uh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, very clearly, I mean, the, the, the starkest contrast is 100 years ago versus now, of course, and yeah. same 100 you know, to 20. There, there weren't really any handmade pipes 100 years ago, were there? At least not as like freehand pipes, like what we're, you know, typically thinking of when we think of handmade. Yeah, I mean, literally 100 years ago is when Alfred Dunhill had the, the original patent pipe it was uh, 1919, I think, 1915, right. somewhere around there. So, and yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, really, when you look at it, a hundred years ago, a pipe was really thought of as a tool, and it was Alfred that decided that, no, wait, this tool can be made better, can last longer, and can be a more enjoyable experience by right. doing these things to it. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, you know, the freehand pipe era, you know, Sixteen Everson, Paul Rasmussen, um, these guys, what they they introduced to pipes was, uh, you know, pipe is a object of art as opposed to simply a, a tool, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that maybe, um, you know, the hundred years ago versus today, that that's the starkest contrast because that's, you know, pipe is a tool versus pipe is an object of art, which is what I think most of or many of your your listeners are are interested in, and that's certainly the you know the the angle on the business that I um, have been most attracted to. But twenty years ago versus today is a different kind of conversation, right? Because that's what two thousand. What what was going on in the pipe world in two thousand, Brian? You were around, and uh, you were in the industry back then, right? Yeah, I mean, at that point, you know, still the big the the big names that that everybody wanted were. Yeah, you know, the couple of, or the handful of Danes, which were just now, you know, the the S. Bang Conowitz, Everson, mm -hmm. you just had the beginning, really, of the Uptown's Pipe Shop movement. Mm -hmm. it was yeah, you know, it was it was a foot, and and everybody knew it. Uh, you had a handful of American pipe makers, uh, mm -hmm. but everything else was really dominated by the uh, by the traditional factories. Uh, right. So we had like, uh, you know, for, for older pipes, you had like Comoys and uh, Dunhill and Savinelli. And uh, that's it was it in the 90s and 2000s is when Castellos were really um, had had were kind of dominating the at least the American pipe collecting scene. Right. 
Yeah, Costello went through a distributorship change in 1998, and that really helped the collector movement because more unique pieces started coming to the U.S. Um, yeah, you, you didn't so that have was, the, that was about that was largely about uh, just availability, right? It was it was about well, it was about the fact that we didn't have the internet and we couldn't see what was going on across right. the world. Right. And, oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. back when they were like the mail catalogs. Uh, what was that? Yeah. Gosh, there. There were a couple um, that were mailers that that went out went around back then. Uh, well, that would have been even before that when you had Barry Levin and his yes, and yes, his Barry mailers. Levin. But I mean, two thousand yeah, nineteen ninety nine. You're looking at just really the beginnings of the internet and ASP on the alt.smokers.net. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah, the news group. That's that's that was the first yeah. source that I found online. Yeah, I mean, that was the 1999. I can remember traveling. I was one of the first traveling sales reps that had a laptop computer, and I had to oh, go. Wow. I had to go into the hotel, disconnect the phone line from the back of the hotel phone, find the local AOL dial-up number, <laughs> connect, <laughs> hit the dial-up. Then I could go in and start unpacking. I could literally, you know, open up my, I'd hit my email inbox in the morning, take a shower, come out and the, and it would have downloaded most of everything of the five emails from the night before. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And God forbid there was an image in one of them, right? Yeah. Oh, forget it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you used to, you used to be able to watch a, a, a movie on TV and during the commercial, you'd look at the image on eBay that downloaded <laughs> and then click next and then watch the 15 minutes of the movie. And then, so, I mean, you got, you really had the beginning of eBay 20 years ago too. So 1997, right. mm -hmm. 98 is when eBay started. Yeah. 99 is when I opened my account. I was in college. Yeah. Uh, so you, so you've got a whole bunch of changes. Um, I think in the past 20 years to me, the entire process of, uh, or, or the entire, handmade pipe making world has become just dramatically more transparent and available and bigger than it was 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, information has been, uh, you know, the availability of the information, whether it's images or, or news groups to learn about different things like that. I, that that's how I learned about pipes. Yeah. Um, when I was starting, I I remember um, that's how I learned about um, uh, it was the Costello with the melted wax, right? And yep. then there was, uh, and then, uh, gosh, it was 2003, 2004, uh, Walt Canoy. I remember uh, seeing his melted wax pipes. I was like, oh my goodness, these things are incredible. Yeah. And I, that was because of, of um, uh, Alt Smokers pipes. Yeah. Um, and you look at... But look go at ahead. that time frame and go back five or six years earlier and our mutual friend Jody Davis had to go travel mm -hmm. to go meet pipe makers to learn how to make a pipe. Right, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and now you can just learn on the internet. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. and, that, and that explains why all pipes are two-dimensional now because everybody sees them on the internet and they're all flat pieces. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> they're, they're beautiful to look at, but only from one angle. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, and, and I think that like that's why there's been such a, a massive development in the last 20 years and not only in um, like a revolution in pipe shaping, it's just gotten so good. And so, uh, so many different kind of artistic angles to approach and why you see a global community of pipe makers and collectors. You not only are connecting uh, potential makers with um you know, shapes that they can aspire to make and, and um, techniques for, for, or for learning to make the pipes um, that they can envision. Um, but you also are finding ways for them to uh, connect with potential buyers for their pipes. Uh, and that, that goes for, you know, whether you're me, who's been at it for, you know, 16 years, uh, or, um, you know, like Yes Konovich, who's been at it for, what, 50? Yeah. Yeah, Tom Eltang just had his fifty-first anniversary of being a pipe maker, and right, right, and he still acts like he's nineteen years old. <laughs> he uh, does so great, but but you're right. Yeah, so the so the difference that I think you know, for a hundred years ago, the pipe really was a bit of a tool, and having something ornate, you'd have to go back into Meersham where you'd see some artistic 
pipes and you'd see some, you know, just really expensive flaunting of artistic talent. Yeah. And then Alfred comes along and the briar pipe starts to, you know, be appreciated as a better mm -hmm. functional tool. Yeah, a hundred years ago, the briar pipe was what fifty years old at that point. And yeah, what was it? Mid mid eighteen hundreds? Yeah, late eighteen hundreds. You know, the briar pipe was still the upstart, and it was really just the English that were interested in them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, in and then, of course, the Danes in the sixties just set the uh, set the pipe world on their heels, and mm -hmm. you, know, you might have some stuff in the fifties that was a little bit designed coming from Cheriton. Uh, right, right. But then in the past 20 years, the idea of a pipe being a highly enjoyable, functional piece of art just exploded. Right, right. Uh, and and you see such a broad range of uh, shapes that that are available. Yeah. And you know, and here's tying back to Rick's other question about the about the price of a pipe. I wonder if there's a correlation between, yeah, you know, I I like a five inch, five and a half inch, sandblasted Levat. Can you charge as much for that as you can for a more stylized, more shaped pipe? Can you? Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, that's a that's a good question. I think that there are some people who like to, uh, price things based on the simplicity or complexity of a pipe. And there are others who, who have a different approach to it. Um, yeah. And the time that, that it takes to make both, if I understand it correctly, mm -hmm. it's not that much of a difference time-wise. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it kind of depends. I mean, um, if you've been at it for a while, making a classic does take less time than making, you know, a, a more stylized pipe, um, in general. Um, but, uh, the way that, that I think about it is the way that it kind of, I, I, if I remember correctly, it was Tom Eltang and I talked about it maybe 10 years ago or so. And, uh, basically those, the, the simpler pipes help, you know, finance the, the more expect, uh, expensive ones, uh, that are more labor intensive. Um, so if you didn't make billiards, you couldn't afford to make, uh, freehands because, you know, the hourly amount that you put into those crazy freehands is, is way, way, uh, the amount of hours is, is way, way more. Yeah, Chevy sold a lot of Chevettes and very few Corvettes, and che mm -hmm. yeah, well, and the Chevette sucked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they but they financed the Corvette, which was their showpiece, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I can see that, and then and then of course the other cost issue with the pipes that I like is I like long shanked pipes, and long mm -hmm. shank means you need a bigger block of wood that works out because you're right, and and not only yeah. and this is what a lot of people don't. Um, uh, this may be new to a lot of people to think about, but uh, if I get an order for, like, let's say a six and a half inch um, Canadian, right? Not only do you need certain dimensions of like, like fixed dimensions of the block of briar that you're working with, but let's say out of 600 blocks of briar that I have, oh, 100 that are long enough. The, actually, 100 that are long enough, but also the grain is oriented properly for me to make the specific shape that you want. It might take that last 100 down to like four. Yeah. And you hope, you hope that one of those four uh, will yield the smooth, straight grain that you were hoping for. And, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. And, and the more... <laughs> The more wood you goof around with, the more chance there are for those little gremlin holes to pop up in it and cause yeah. little more issues to it. So, yeah, and that's kind of the, that that goes, you know, touching on the pricing question that you were asking about is that um, it's almost as it really is that like a a perfect straight grain billiard um, should very well cost as much or more than a perfectly straight grain freehand. Um, most um, you know seasoned pipe makers can make a straight grain freehand, um, you know, pretty regularly. Like it's, uh, it, let's say a 50% hit rate on those. Um, because you know what to look for in the block and you know how to work around it um, when you're shaping it. You're shaping it before you're drilling it, right? But if I'm yeah. going to make a, you know, five inch long love it, um, that I, once I, I start turning that pipe, the shape is fixed in the direction it is and there's nothing you can do to move it around if you find a flaw. But if I'm shaping freehand, I find a flock and just, you know, make some changes and make a different shape. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, or that that Canadian becomes a uh, Levant, <laughs> and then it becomes yeah. a, uh, a billiard, <laughs> and, then, and then it becomes a desk pipe with a hose. Yeah, uh, yeah. I have some of those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one more quick question, and I think this ties into everything that we've been talking about. And this is okay. again from Rick, and he, and this is purely for you because I don't have any opinion on it. Okay. Uh, when pipe makers speak of finding great briar, are they referring to aesthetics or smoking qualities? Uh, well, I think that um, the smoking qualities is kind of baked in to that question. That would be that's kind of the you, you can assume that is true for all all pipe makers. All good pipe makers are looking for great smoking briar, and essentially what you're looking for there is briar that uh, is properly cured. Right. Yeah. I think we've talked about about this in a previous uh, segment. Um, so let's just say that all pipe make all good pipe makers are looking for um, good briar that has good smoking qualities. Um, if they're sp- talking about great briar, it means that it already meets that first threshold and it is just beautiful. Um, yeah. Like there aren't very many flaws in it, at least on the surface, and um, that uh, uh, the grain structure is just you know anything uh, it's just perfectly straight and and uh makes it so that you could make any number of shapes out of it and there and there's really no way for you to tell if it's great smoking briar except by reputation and experience correct yeah exactly exactly yeah. so i mean if i i, I have had the, i have had this happen before where i bought briar from a cutter and uh, got it in and i looked at it and i was like boy this sure doesn't look like it's cured all that well and uh, I made a test pipe out of it, and I just, just as an experiment, um, I boiled some water and tossed the uh, test pipe into the water. And presumably, if it's been well cured or well uh, boiled at the the cutter, um, that white water is going to be relatively clear. You're not, there's there are no tannins to be removed from it, right? Right. This water turned first; it turned red or pink, then red, then brown, and then black. Ooh, yummy! Yeah. So I pulled the block out, I uh, poured out the water. I hope it didn't corrode the uh, the pipes as I poured it out. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty nasty stuff. And uh, I filled it back up, and I ended up boiling it three or four times before the water even was pink. Mm. So that I would count as a uh, bad briar. I never used that cutter again. Uh, so, so could you, if you have a question about a block, you could shave mm-hmm. off a small piece of it and boil it just to see if anything comes out of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's one way. That was just a test that I did back yeah. then. I mean, generally speaking, you can look at a block of briar uh, or hold it in your hand and get a sense of the texture of the wood. And there's like a waxy, um, like, like matte or uh, like a little bit between matte and gloss, um, or semi-gloss, let's call it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> appearance to... Um, uh, briar that has not been, uh, cured properly. And it'll have like a pinkish, uh, tint, like a, a dark red or a pinkish tint. And, um, now there are, there is well cured briar that does have pink in sections of it. That's not the same thing that I'm talking about here, just in case people are going to go peeking around in briar piles at the, uh, uh, pipe show. Um, <laughs> there are, uh, there are, you don't always get briar that is, uh, evenly, um, tinted throughout. I'm bringing my paint chips from Sherwin Williams, and I'm looking at the difference between matte, semi-gloss, gloss, and oil base. And I'm gonna, okay. yeah, I'm gonna be that guy. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. All right, Jeff. We have uh, that. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we're gonna. I'm gonna have you back and do one more of these uh, big long sessions because we've got um, Rich Esserman's got a bunch of questions for you and. Ah, great. Yeah, so I hope everybody enjoyed that. Jeff, thanks for coming on and doing this. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll be back in just a minute. Have a look in your tobacco cellar. What do you see? Think of what you smoke, what you age, what you're drawn to in a blend that keeps you wanting more. That's your taste. And whether you know it or not, You've been leading that expedition since you first picked up a pipe just by smoking what you like and liking what you smoke. But the funny thing about taste, it changes and you need a wide selection to accommodate it. We at Smoking Pipes know this and you know it too. 
So whether you're searching for a tried and true favorite or a singular boutique mixture, we're here to help you navigate the voyage of your evolving tastes. But you're still at the helm, smoking pipes in faithful service of the hobby. This is Internet Radio. And we are back. A lot of information in there, so if you want, go back, rewind, listen to it over again. Go ahead. I'll wait. No, I'm kidding. All right. Uh, thanks to Jeff for joining me uh, for music. So my friend Dan Locklear pointed this one out to me, and then I went and found the actual piece of music. And it's from Sir Edward Elgar, famous for Pomp and Circumstances, which is the uh, graduation music that everybody's heard before, and I think we played it on here. Uh, Elgar was a dedicated uh, pipe and cigar smoker, a passionate uh, tobacco enthusiast, even to the point when at one point he was traveling, and as I understand it, and I may be wrong, uh, I'm wrong frequently, you know, at least once a year, uh, Elgar was traveling and staying with a friend in Germany, and his wife, the wife of Elgar's friend instructed Elgar to please not smoke in the hallways or one other room. So, um, upset with this request, Elgar wrote this piece of music. And again, this is the shortest piece of music that I have ever played on the Pipes Magazine radio show. So, here it is, all 47 seconds of the, of the lost but recently found uh, 20 years ago, uh, Smoking Cantata for Voice and Orchestra by Sir Edward Elgar. go uh, there's a lot that can be said about that very short piece of music um, the first thing well the primary thing that comes to my mind is that it was a lady that told him that and I'm guessing uh, having a male singer is uh, Elgar being snarky and responding back to her with in her voice but you know his way I don't know <laughs> anyway technically it's an unfinished piece and it was found about 20 years ago and performed so 47 seconds. Sure wish he would have finished that one off. You've got frickin' mail. In the mailbag, remember, if you have a comment or question, you can email me directly, brian at pipesmagazine.com, or you can go on to Pipes Magazine and post right there on the radio show's page and comment right on that episode. Uh, and if you have any travel-related questions, the email address is brian.levine at mei-travel.com. Come. All right, going uh, going way back. Uh, uh, Timothy Hamilton writes, I love the show. My favorite part is hearing Brian's lighter flint as he smokes his pipe. <laughs> there we go. Some support for my lighter and support for my pipe smoking habit while I'm uh, recording interviews. Uh, lots of positive comments to having James Foster on. And then again, lots of positive comments to having... Uh, uh, John David Cole on, and uh, one in particular from David Quisenberry uh, regarding John David Cole's visit. Uh, he says, very informative show. I hope everyone who complains about how XYZ Company changed a blend because it isn't like they remember listens to the second half of the show. And kudos to John David Cole for using small words you would understand, leaving phrases like highly venerated to his band of scallywags. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Tim, for uh, keeping it simple so that I could follow. Um, but you're right, that is a, it, it is important for everybody to understand that, you know, as times change, blends have to be reconfigured and re-manipulated. So go back and listen to that. 
and then uh, finally, uh, Mark VV said, you should have me on to drag down the quality a little bit. James Foster adds too much class to the show. Yeah, and if you read James's stuff, um, you know that's that's some good reading and uh, really smart. So, but the, at least we got the uh, FDA update and all that. Uh, finally, regarding my past trip, thanks to uh, Jeff Martins for coming and hanging out with me, and uh, and my wife for tolerating two pipe guys sitting and smoking while she was uh, sitting there listening to a conversation that she didn't know much of. Uh, and, uh, we had a nice visit at the, uh, Danish pipe shop in Copenhagen. So if you're ever nearby, do swing in and say hi to them. Uh, great selection of pipes, great selection of tobaccos, great guys. Yeah. Sadly, you can't smoke in the store, but there you go. All right. Again, comments or questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. Uh, remember I will not be at the Columbus NASPC show this weekend because we have, we bought tickets to Queen in concert and it happens to be on Friday night here in Charlotte. So I won't be there. If you are coming to Charlotte, please let me know. I will be glad if I get a chance, uh, if I'm available to uh, hang out with you either at McCraney's or somewhere else or whatever. Just let me know if you're coming through Charlotte. Um, finally, the uh, couple of things for you for the Richmond Conclave of Richmond Pipe Smokers show. And I'm going to stumble while I try to grab the email real quick. But uh, in addition to me being there and recording some stuff live from the show, including recording your responses to uh, what the to visiting a, an actual working pipe factory that will be running, uh, there are still ta uh, some a few tables available for vendors or pipe makers or anybody else that wants to show off their wares. Uh, even if you want to bring some of your own your own vintage tobaccos that you happen to find in a closet somewhere, you know, that'll work too. Uh, bring them and get a table and sell them. Uh, Jeremy McKenna told me that uh, this is this is going to be a kicker. So uh, they have some original McClellan 5100, several years old that they're tinning and will be selling it to raise money. And this is a surprise to me for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. So not only will you have me there, you'll have uh, Per Jensen will be there. I believe Russ Willett will be there. Uh, and you can get your hands on some tins of McClellan 5100 that uh, Sutliff is canning up special for this event. And the proceeds are going to a cause that is near and dear to my heart. So I'm happy to hear that. And, of course, I'll be happy to hear from all of you. Uh, so, again, there's tables available. Plan on spending the whole day because there's going to be uh, music afterwards out in the parking lot and in the tents there. And it's going to be a great time. Uh, if you have any comments or questions about it, hit me up. Let me know. Follow me on Facebook. Follow me on Instagram. And rant time is coming up next there's nothing quite like a good book or my genuine missouri meerschaum corn cob pipe an american legend since 1869 it's the coolest smoothest pipe i've ever owned see for yourself at corncobpipe.com American Airlines, you suck. And the problem is you don't know how bad you suck. All right, maybe that's a little harsh, but uh, you failed. Okay, here's what happened. Uh, on our trip, we left Charlotte, flew on a flight from American Airlines to JFK, John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York. The idea was then we would have a eight-hour or nine-hour layover there to switch terminals and go to Norwegian Airlines. So we had to fly on on American to from Charlotte to JFK, grab get to JFK, get our bags, and then take the little train and go to the next terminal. Right? Well, here's what happened. Uh, 
American Airlines apparently had 60,000 international Boy Scouts or Scouts or whatever come through Charlotte the day before and the day that we were leaving. And they blame the overloaded airport and overrun uh, flights for the fact that they lost my wife's bag. All right. We were flying from Charlotte to JFK. We weren't changing planes anywhere. No. What happened is they lost my wife's bag in Charlotte. Uh, and they tried to use the excuse of all these Boy Scouts and the fact that the airport was overrun. Well, all right, so you screwed up, okay? So none of this really matters to me because here's where the problem occurs. You have this bag tracking software on your app. You have my email. You have my cell phone number for texting. You have all these ways of informing us of what's going on. For the next 48 hours until we got her bag, we had no idea what was going on because they don't text you, they don't email you, they don't update their app when the bag is lost. If you go on the app right now, and we're talking about 16, 18 days later, right now my wife's bag shows that it's at JFK Airport and was never claimed. No, we got the bag in Amsterdam. So here's my comment as we run out of time in music. Well, here's my comment. Learn how to frickin' text or send an email or update people on this stuff. The only way we knew what was going on was because I kept on the phone with them and kept calling them and calling them and calling them and calling them until, guess what? We didn't even know it got delivered until the bellman at the hotel in Amsterdam who I had left our phone number with, called us and said, your bag is here. Uh, all right. Uh, in a future week, a uh, positive, uh, a rave on Norwegian Airlines, and, a, and, uh, and I'll continue to update you on uh, American Airlines. Uh, I want to thank Jeff for coming on and joining me. Thank you all for tuning in, and bomba until next time. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy Thank you for flying the friendly skies. Now get out. Bye bye.